In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. I'm happy to be with you again. Uh, it's a blessing for me to, um, to participate in the service. Um, I'm just going to go through a few questions that I've received from Father Matthias that you have asked. And uh, God willing, we'll try, I'll try my best to, um, to answer these questions. So the first question that I've received, um, it says, many times when I try to do my morning spiritual canon, if even while I'm in liturgy, I feel so sleepy and it feels hard for me to focus. Is there anything that I can do to help me focus better? Um, I think the most important thing of doing a spiritual canon is for it to be a routine. Once it's a routine and you do it naturally without any, um, you know, distractions. And it's almost like you wake up and you brush your teeth and you get dressed and, uh, and you pray and so forth. Once it becomes a routine, then you're almost on a spiritual autopilot. And that's really the most important thing that you're consciously and subconsciously um, doing the same uh, canon over and over again. And this is really important, a lot more important than whether you get distracted or not get distracted. Because a lot of times our human habits are built on routines. Actually, most of the times, everything that we do is routine based. And that's why when you go to the monastery or an abbey, you'll see them doing a very specific routine over and over again. You know, they would wake up, let's say at 3.30 in the morning, they will start you know, midnight praise at four o'clock in the morning, they finish midnight praises, they go to matins, they do a liturgy. And then after that, they might get some rest and then they go back and do some work and then they meet at 5 p.m. and they do a prayer and then they sleep or, and then they have dinner and so forth. And that's, you know, the day continues. And obviously they have to do all of their uh, prayers in between and their canons as well. So the most important thing is to make sure that it becomes a routine. Sometimes you might get distracted and sometimes you might not get distracted. That's okay. That's secondary. Um, the consistency and the routine behavior of our spiritual canons is what anchors us in God. And that's why you hear stories, for example, of Pope Corollus, St. Pope Corollus VI, how he had a very specific daily routine, how he would do a liturgy every day, you know, not every single prayer and not every single liturgy was, you know, the absolute most focused, uh, you know, liturgy out there. But just the fact that it's a routine and just the fact that you're constantly talking to God and not struggling with that, should I stand up and pray or should I not stand up and pray? That's, that's your primary focus. Secondary focus, if you really, really want to focus on what you're praying, I suggest that you always make sure that you don't um, leave your Agbeya book. Um, I personally, for example, I don't use my cell phone at all uh, for my spiritual routines. I use a physical Agbeya book. And I, I, no matter how, you know, how many times I've said the same prayers and, you know, I, no matter how much I memorize the prayers and memorize the Psalms and the gospel, I still like to read it. So make a point to physically hold the book, not your cell phone, because your cell phone could be a distraction or your iPad or any device. It's a physical book. And make sure that you actually read the words, not just regurgitate the words, even if you have them memorized. When you read the words 
and you're slowing down, you really, really intensify your focus that way. So it's not like, you know, and there are the fathers and the father No, there's nothing. Then it, it just became a regurgitation of words. But when I slow it down and I really read the words and I focus on each word, and that doesn't have to be like done in a very slow, it could be done in a good pace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, amen. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, bless us, amen. Each of these words and each of these prayers are like, you know, they hit the heart. When I say, Lord, have mercy, I truly ask for God's mercy for my sins and for my deeds and for my family and for my church and for my city and for my country and for the whole world to have mercy on us and so forth and so forth. That That's exactly how you can intensify your focus. It's depth. Our spirituality is based on depth, not length of prayers. One small little verse that is said with a lot of depth could make you know your whole life transition from one phase to another phase and can make you overcome sins it could make you overcome doubt it could give you peace and joy so i suggest slow down read it carefully pray not read i remember when i went to the monastery in my 40 days and abuna uh, was teaching me how to do the liturgy he used to tell me, pray the liturgy, not read the liturgy. And there's a difference. If I'm just reading, like I said, I'm just reading. And as if, you know, as if I'm just trying to finish a prayer by reading it versus I'm praying it. And when I'm praying it, I'm actually involving my emotions, not just my brain saying, you know, a prayer over and over or reading something. No, I'm, I'm internalizing the prayer it's hitting my feelings, it's hitting my subconscious, it's hitting my being. And I'm, I'm meditating on the prayer, not I'm just reading a passage and that's it. And as it becomes a routine, like I said, the most important thing is for our spiritual cancer to become a routine. As it becomes a routine, I'm not struggling whether I should pray or not. I have overcome that first issue. Now I could really slow down and I could really over time really, really focus on uh, each of these prayers. So hopefully that um, answered that question. Again, if you have any follow-up questions, uh, I'm not sure how we could do it, but maybe Sharif or anybody else, uh, if they could post any follow-up questions or other remarks, uh, happy to answer them as well. The second question, um, after listening to a sermon by His Grace Bishop Yusuf about the types of communication, I realized that I need to learn how to communicate directly and clearly. How can I take baby steps in learning this? Also, do you know any book that can help me grow gradually in adapting this healthy method of communication? So I'm not sure exactly which sermon you're referring to. Uh, His Grace Bishop Yusuf's uh, sermons are all wonderful. But my comment uh, around communication in general, the most important part of communication has nothing to do with speaking. It has to do with listening. Anybody could speak, 
but not anybody can really listen. And there's a difference between listening and active listening. Active listening is me trying to really get into the root issue of what the person is saying or why this person is saying that. And that might require me asking questions, clarifying questions to really get to the root issue of what this person is saying. Because a person might be saying something, but that's not the root issue. And that's not something that they're bothered by. So I have to really listen. I have to ask follow-up questions. I have to be able to read the body language. And I have to have emotional intelligence. And I have to discern what the situation and the context is. And I have to empathize. All these things have nothing to do with talking. They have to do with listening. Um, you ask for a good book. There's a really good book by Mark Goldston. It's called Just Listen. Just Listen. I, I really recommend it. Uh, and it will, teach you, it will teach you many ways and many methods of how to listen. I'll give you an example. If I'm talking to someone and I really want this person to elaborate, my body language has to be an open body language. I cannot be closed, holding my hands and putting my hand on my, my, my head on my hand and I'm like all bored. And this doesn't give the impression that I'm actively listening. I have to physically open myself up to, to literally take and understand what this person is saying. And second, the book just talks about simple things. I'll just give you one of them. Just me saying, hmm. That sound, hmm, that actually forces the person to elaborate without me saying anything else. So if someone is talking and just me saying, hmm, just like that and staying quiet, that allows the person to know that I'm engaged in the conversation and I want them to continue talking. So try it as, a, as an exercise in active listening, that whenever you're talking to someone, first of all, talk less a lot less than you normally would. Second, listen more. Third, allow them to continue talking to the, to the extent that you wanna talk. A lot of times when people are talking, we interrupt them. We think that they have finished and they probably have not finished their thought. But just me saying, hmm, it's a simple thing. I, I, I do it all the time. It actually prompts them to keep going, keep talking until they say at least a three second pause, then you're allowed to speak. And that's the proper communication. So if someone's talking, I should be able to count three seconds. You can do it Mississippi wise, like one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. And then I can speak. And our words are very important in terms of how they affect the person in front of me. So choose your words wisely as part of your communication. But the biggest banner, the biggest impact on your skills in communication, and this applies in service and this applies in a, uh, work and applies in any ministry and applies in your family is active listening. If you do not have active listening skills, you will never be an effective communicator. To communicate after that, you have to understand what the person really 
intended from what they have said in order for your words to actually mean something. If you don't quite get what they have just said, then the, you won't be able to answer their question. And ask follow-up questions to really get into the root issue. So another method that I use is called the five whys uh, to really get to the root issue of anything. So if someone says, for example, um, uh, coming to liturgy is so hard, I would say why? And then I would say why? If you get to five whys, and that's a lot, you probably get to the root issue of why this person thinks the liturgy is so hard, for example. And you actually see that same thing happens with young children as well, when they keep on saying, why, why, why? It's the same, it's the same methodology, but of course done with adults, you cannot annoy them, <laughs> but you're trying to really understand what the issue is by saying, oh, you know, I don't like to come to church. Why? Well, you know, I, I like to sleep in and you know, okay, but why do you like to sleep in? Well, I'm really tired at work. And the night before I, you know, I stay up late. Why do you need to stay up late? Well, you know, I usually go out and party or something. And then maybe by the third or the fourth, why you'd be like, okay, well, maybe, you know, in order for you to really enjoy the liturgy, make a point to not stay up late and to sleep early and prepare yourself from the night before. And maybe I'd try to attend Vespers and attend midnight praises. That would really get you in the right rhythm to be able to continue uh, enjoying liturgy, for example. I just kind of role played a simple, you know, discussion between two people, one that would have more of active listening, where they ask questions to really understand what the issue is, rather than someone just answers right away from, you know, the first phrase and responds, not knowing what the actual issue is to begin with. Uh, please, at any time, if you have any follow up questions or comments, uh, please let me know. Uh, I will talk a lot less and I will listen a lot more. Uh, the third question, it says the verse in Acts uh, 6, chapter 6, verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. I have some questions about this part. One, how can we apply that principle on the level of Sunday school servants? So what are things that are appropriate for us to focus on and what are the things that we should not focus on? And what are the things that, I think that cut off. Um, so that verse was really meant as the church grew, uh, the disciples who were instructed by Christ to preach the good news, they were serving people. And that, now, again, there's nothing wrong with serving people by any uh, stretch of the imagination. We're all called to serve each other. But they were saying that our main focus as the disciples is to preach the good news and to preach about Christ. If we're not going to be able to do this and serve tables, and again, this is not belittling serving tables, um, then our focus, we cannot continue doing what we're asked to do. And therefore, we need to have help along the way. And this need that we have to have has to come from also spiritual people, even though it was serving tables, 
you know, they said that, you know, St. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and full of grace, you know, just to be able to serve tables. So their main focus is how do we preach the good news and give the good news and work for the salvation of other people and not focus on cleaning tables along the way. Um, this can be applied in service in general by saying, what is my role? And what are my boundaries for that role? And for me to be faithful to that role and for me to be a good steward of that responsibility and not go outside of that boundary. Uh, for example, you know, there's a lot of things that are within the boundaries of a servant that are different than the boundaries of a priest, that are different than the boundaries of a bishop, that are different than the boundaries of someone that's not even uh, a servant in Sunday school, like uh, just a person that comes in the church. Each one has boundaries and has a list of responsibilities. And it's very important for us to have, an, in order for us to have an effective service, that we stick to our boundaries and our responsibilities. If a normal person goes to the priest and says, step aside, I'm going to, you know, do this instead of you today, you know, that's not staying within the boundaries of that person. Or if a priest, you know, goes and does the responsibility of someone, of a lay person, well, again, that's not appropriate because you're meant to be a priest. You're meant to focus on your own uh, stewardship and, and preaching the gospel and, and holding true to the faith and preaching about orthodoxy and, uh, you know, following the rights of the church and, and instructing the people for the, their salvation and, and, you know, administering the sacraments. That's the, really the role of the priest. So if, I, if a priest all of a sudden takes the role of a lay person, then who, who's going to do the role of the priest? And, and, and we could really reflect on this verse by saying, look, you know, our role as disciples for that verse in, in chapter six is to preach, is to administer the sacraments, is to work for the salvation of everyone. We cannot leave that and focus on uh, taking care of tables. Someone else could come along and focus on that, and that would be their service. And as long as this person is faithful with their service and we're faithful in our service, then God can come and bless all of us since we're all faithful with the talents and the responsibilities that we are given. And that's why in the talents, you know, each one of us has different talents and it's not right for us to, you know, focus on someone else's talents and forget about our own talents. No, you're given certain talents and you're asked to be a good and faithful servant with the talents that you have within the responsibilities and the framework that you have that's why at the end it says you know we want to all hear well done good and faithful servant that's what we want to hear you've been faithful you've been faithful this is the number one criteria of any servant have you been faithful with a stewardship that was given to you or not hopefully that again answers that question Why do we call our churches after saints' names? Uh, a lot of times in, in the second, the third century during um, persecutions, there was many, many people that were martyred 
and their bodies were put in churches. And the church was known by that saint just because of their relics being in that church. And over time, you know, that church all of a sudden is called by the name of that, of that martyr. And that's how it developed over time. You know, at the beginning, the churches were in people's homes. If you read in the book of Acts, they were gathered together on the day of the Lord, which is Sunday, and they would break bread, which is communion, and they would pray together. Where, where would this happen? They, would, they actually start that in people's homes, just that simple. And then over time, when there were too many people and the homes were not that big, they said, okay, let's find a spot where we can actually meet together and, and continue uh, praying and continue administering the sacraments and so forth. And then over time, as, this, as the churches grew, like I said, during the persecution, they would put the relics of, of the different saints in different churches. Or, you know, a saint would, would say, would appear to someone after they were, have been martyred and they would tell them, you know, build a church for me in this location. So that church by default was named after the martyr. And then over the years, the churches took on different names. Some churches just took on generic names like, um, you know, Holy Cross, for example, or Resurrection uh, Church. Um, but also we have many churches that are named after saints. Also in the Coptic Orthodox Church, it's customary that most new cities start with the church for uh, St. Mary first and then St. Mark or one or the other first, like the first church would be called maybe St. Mark, second would be called St. Mary. Uh, I've seen it both both ways. Um, and then a lot of times the St. Mary church would be called St. Mary and Archangel Michael. Uh, usually that's one of the first churches uh, or St. Mark first. And then after that, over time it developed into what people really loved, which saints people loved. Uh, you know, I remember growing up in St. Catharines, Canada, St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, uh, when we started our church and I was really young, you know, people got together and really picked the names of their favorite saints. So uh, I grew up in a church called St. Jo George and St. Marcorius Abusifain. And it's only because the people that came together, which was my parents' generation, said, you know, we really love St. George and we really love St. Marcorius Abusifain. So why don't we call uh, our church by those two names. And then again, in the land of immigration, uh, it made sense to name churches with multiple names, like two names at a time. Again, because there were so many people that loved so many saints and you know we didn't have the ability to have so many churches. So they start combining churches. That's why in North America, you'll find um, a lot of churches that are named with two saints at a time. I don't think that's as common in Egypt. Uh, I think most of the time it's just one saint, again, just because of the fact that there are so many churches and there, there's no reason to combine saints in one church. Again, hopefully that answered that question. Um, Whenever I hear sermons or meditation about the story of our Lord's visit to the house of Mary and Martha, I hear that servants should make sure that their spiritual life is a priority before their service. 
How can we make sure that our spiritual life is a priority regardless of the demands of all the other responsibilities that can feel more urgent? Also, if I find that I have way too many things that are urgent in my life, is that an indicator? Again, that cut off. I'm assuming is that an indicator for not continuing service. Um, so I personally believe that there is a hierarchy of priorities um, in everyone's life. Um, my salvation, and by default, my spirituality, is my number one priority. Whether I am a priest or a monk or a bishop or a pope or a servant, my own spirituality, my own salvation is my number one priority. And that's not a selfish act. That's actually an act of responsibility and an act of good stewardship and faithfulness. God came and gave me existence. I did not exist before time. God came and said, I will create you. And through this creation, I'm going to give you talents and I'm going to give you responsibilities. And you yourself needs to need to know what those responsibilities and those talents are. So as a spiritual person, I have to really focus on my own spirituality. And it reminds me of the time, you know, if you ever fly um, on airplanes, it's been a while. <laughs> I think most people haven't flown uh, on airplanes for a while. The, you know, when they always go through the emergency protocols and they say in case of an emergency or, you know, a pressure drop, please make sure you put on your mask first before you put on anybody else, even if you have a child. And they always insist, you know, make sure you put on your mask first before you put on, your, on anybody else to help them. That's not a selfish act. That's again, that's a, an act of, of faithfulness and, and, and knowing your limitation because you cannot help someone if you yourself you know, are not breathing. So think of that as uh, from a spiritual perspective as well, that if I have not attained you know, joy, then I cannot preach about joy to people and I cannot be joyful to, towards others. If I have not encountered repentance and confession, I cannot teach repentance and confession to others. If I don't know my own sins, then maybe my pride will, you know, will be a stumbling block for others. So as I get filled spiritually, by default, I'm benefiting my service. I'm benefiting my home. I'm benefiting my family. I'm benefiting my friends. I'm benefiting um, everybody that encounters me by default, just by, by normal interaction. I'm not saying that I'm going to be filled spiritually and I'm going to stand in a corner of the street and start preaching. Just by default, the more I focus on my own spirituality, the more I'm actually helping a lot of people along the way. I think it was St. John Chrysostom that says, if there were two Christians in the world, we wouldn't have atheism in the world. It would just, it would be gone because we would have true Christians. So when people wonder what Christianity is all about, they'd be like, oh, look at this person or look at that person. They, these are two Christians. They are living what they're preaching. So that's the number one high priority in my life, my salvation and my spirituality. And then out of that relationship and out of that loving intimacy that I have with God, you know, God's love that gets poured on someone cannot be contained. I can't just feel God's love in my life and contain that love to myself. 
then it wouldn't be, that means I have not really encountered God in any way. I have not felt Christ's hand in my life. When I feel Christ in my life and I'm, and his love is poured on me, by default, I, I you know, I, I overflow with love towards people. When I have encountered how many times I have sinned and many times I repented, many times I confessed, and how Christ still accepted me and Christ still loves me and Christ still encourages me and Christ is with me in everything. By default, I love other people because I have encountered the love of Christ. So number one priority is myself. Number two priority, it depends on each one of us and what God has given each one of us. So for example, if I'm a single person, my number one priority is my spirituality. And then maybe after that, if I'm just a single person studying, then it's my studies. That's my number two priority. If I am a single person and I'm serving, then my number one priority would my, be my spirituality. And then it would be my service or it would be my studies and then my service. If I'm a married man, then it would be my own spirituality and then my wife. And then what can I do to help my wife along the way to help her attain the spiritual goals that I'm trying to attain? If I'm uh, a married uh, husband uh, and I have children, then it's my own spirituality, my wife's spirituality, and then my children's spirituality. That's the hierarchy of spirit. That's a hierarchy of, of priorities. So first, spirit, my own spirituality. Second, my wife's spirituality. Third, my kid's spirituality. And then service. And even as a priest, I take it upon myself. That this, this is my hierarchy of priority. That, that does not you know, lower the priority of service as if it's nothing. No. The more I can take care of myself spiritually and the more I can take care of my wife and take care of my kids, they will be encouraging me to be able to serve even more. But if, if I don't take care of my wife and I don't take care of my children, they don't have a substitute for someone else to come and serve them. But maybe other people could have a substitute instead of me to go and serve them. So I hope that it's clear that service is very important, but at the same time, know what the hierarchy of priorities are. Don't come into God's house to serve the house and not spend time with God himself. It's like, imagine someone coming to someone's house and not spending time with the host and just going around the house and cleaning the house. Like, what are you doing? I don't want you to clean my house. I want you to spend time with me. But if you spend time with me, maybe we both can clean the house together. Or maybe we can both spend time doing whatever we need to do for the house to maintain the house. That's what service is all about. I don't come to the church to serve God's children and leave God alone. I'm like, no, I'm here to spend time with God. And God is going to teach me how to serve his children. And along the way, it's really God that's serving his own children. I'm just an instrument in his hand. Um, and that's how you maintain that hierarchy of priorities. And that's how along the way things don't go, you know, out of, out of, uh, out of order. Um, there are so many people that miss that hierarchy of priorities and all of a sudden assume that, you know, let's say service is the number one priority and maybe, you know, they have not taken care of themselves uh, or they have not taken care of their children or they have not taken care of their husbands or their wives or whatever. 
And all of a sudden it's like, no, I got to do this service. I'm like, no, the service could be done by anybody else. Or sometimes it's a fallacy that we think that the service has to be done in a very specific way. No, the service could wait. If there's, you know, if there's other priorities, you know, maybe a specific type of service could be given to someone else. Maybe a service could be delayed by a day or two or whatever, depending on the service. It could be canceled. The whole service could be canceled. No problem. Um, but your own salvation cannot be canceled. Your own relationship with your spouse cannot be canceled. Your relationship with your children cannot be canceled. But service, there's other people that can serve and be a substitute for you. So along the way, you need to have this balance in any place, in any service. Is, the, is there balance? Am I balanced as a human being? Are my priorities straight? Am I focusing on my own spirituality and my own salvation? Am I focusing on my wife or my husband? If I have a wife or husband, am I focusing on my children? Am I focusing on my home? Am I focusing on my, my spiritual children? That's the hierarchy. Um, and then after that, my parents and family and friends and everything else. So let us not take a priority that's ranked number five or number six and put it ahead of uh, number one, for example. Then, then it's out of order. And then I, that means I'm not going to be able to be a balanced uh, spiritual person. We aspire to be a bal balanced spiritual people all the time. Uh, I'm going to stop here. It's nine o'clock. Um, if there's any follow-up questions, please let me know. Uh, otherwise, I'm just going to pray right now and end the meeting. Any follow-up questions? Or I think we usually go till 9 o'clock, right, Sharif? Um, 8.30. Uh, 9.30? So 8.30. 8.30. We still have 30 more minutes. Oh, we have 30. Okay, sorry. I'm in the EST. Okay. Uh, okay, then we'll keep going. <laughs> I thought I thought it was not. I thought you go till eight o'clock. Okay, so whenever. Okay, so we finished that one. How can I deal with despair and passiveness if they are two of my major weaknesses? Despair and passiveness. Okay, so let's focus on despair first. Um, whenever I have despair. That means I have not really uh, encountered the joy of the Lord. The Psalm says the joy of the Lord is my strength. The Bible says rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Um, in Thessalonians says uh, rejoice always and uh, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. So if I have despair, then I have to diagnose where that despair is coming from. And usually despair one, I don't have a personal relationship with God because he is our joy. And second, it could be sin, whatever, any type of sin. And, or it could be fear, either, either sin or fear. And, and Christ really understood that about our nature and, and gave us solutions for both um, sin and fear. So if I have despair... First, I have to have a personal relationship with Christ. But I'm assuming that I have a personal relationship with Christ, but I'm still sad, then it's usually sin or fear. If I have a sin, God, Christ has given a solution by repentance and confession. So any sin that you have, if you change your ways, if you truly repent, um, 
and do a U-turn in your life, come and confess your sins and take communion and these sins will be absolved. So that is a solution for any form of a sin. And there's no such thing as like a good sin or a bad sin or a, a small sin or a big sin. We, we can't quantify sin. Sin is not something that we measure by weight or by size. Sin is a sin. Okay, because uh, we always get that, you know, in confession. Abuna, I just have a small sin. <laughs> I have a big sin. <laughs> like, they're, they're both sins. There's no size. <laughs> um, so the, to overcome uh, sin, repentance, confession, and communion. To overcome fear. Um, usually fear has to do with something that's unknown. I'm afraid of something that's unknown. And the biggest fear, the number one fear, if you take, you know, a survey of all of the fears out there in the world, the number one fear in the world is death, is death. And also Christ has given us a solution. He has come on earth to give us the ability to overcome sin and to overcome death through his resurrection. All we have to do with fear, like I said, repentance, confession, communion, and with death, we have to abide in him. Abiding in him here is abiding on the physical level, on the spiritual level, on the emotional level, on the psychological level. We all have to abide in him. Because if I abide in life, then I, I would have overcome death. And Christ is life. He has overcome death through his resurrection. And he has given me the ability to overcome death as well, whether death of sin, which is a spiritual death, or physical death, he has given me that ability. How? By abiding in him. And when I take communion, I take his body and his flesh and his blood, that becomes part of me. There's no separation. You know, when, when we eat any food, it breaks down into our body and it goes into our bloodstream. You cannot separate where that food is anymore. It's who you are now. And that's why the, the, the impression or the expression that we say, you are what you eat. It's actually a very true statement. You are what you eat because it becomes part of you. And so that's why you are Christ because you eat Christ because he becomes part of you. Uh, and this abiding, I'm abiding in him physically and I'm abiding him spiritually by, by, by through my spiritual canons and mentally by thinking about him. Uh, and emotionally by my feeling and my feelings and, and knowing what Christ would feel. All these ab forms of abiding with Christ is abiding with life. And that gives me the ability to overcome death, whether it's spiritual death or physical death. Once I have done that, then I truly become as if I'm in heaven already. I don't need to die anymore to be in heaven. Why? Because I've overcome sin through repentance and confession, which is what heaven is all about. There's no sin in heaven. And I've overcome my physical death by abiding in Christ. So I'm no longer on earth. I'm actually in heaven. I'm just, this is just my physical body. C.S. Lewis used to say, you are not a body that has a soul. You are a soul that has a body. So he just flipped it in a sense that your true essence is the breath of God, which is your soul. And your body is just the vehicle that, that you have 
now. So your original aspect or your original essence is your soul. And that's really what the most important thing is. So I could live a very joyous heavenly life on earth. No problem. Because I've overcome sin and I've overcome the physical death. I've overcome the spiritual death and the, and the physical death. And therefore I'm, I'm overcome. I've overcome death already. I'm no longer dead. I'm alive. And a lot of us actually encounter that, especially if you take your repentance and confession seriously. Every time you go and confess, just you know, stay there for a second thinking about how much you, know, you feel before you actually go and confess, how much of a burden sin is. And then what is that feeling that you get the second uh, Abuna gives you the absolution? You'll sense right away uh, a sense of relief, a sense of uh, like just being happy, elated, and you don't know why. Just the second you confessed your sin and the second Abuna um, or the priest, you know, absolves you from that sin, you almost feel as if someone lifted you up as if you're like happy and joyous and you have, you know, you're, you're free, you're ready to go. So once you do that, that gives you a, a small second of what heaven is going to be like, but for eternity. So imagine that for a second, that's that second of absolute happiness that you receive right after you confess is what you will feel in heaven, but forever. So it's a very joyous thing. And again, the same thing, a lot of people encounter, especially if you repent and confess, and then you go and take communion. And once you take communion, you're really like on an even higher level of happiness and joy, uh, and that spiritual joy, not a physical joy anymore. The spiritual joy is that you, you have overcome the, the spiritual death, you have overcome the physical death, and now you're spiritually elevated and joyous and happy. And you don't need to have a physical enjoyment anymore. And as you continue practicing these sacraments, you'll get to a point where God becomes your number one source of joy. No, no longer other things. Christ is my number one joy. He is the source of my joy. I don't need to rely on other people to make me happy. I don't need to rely on physical things to make me happy. I'm already happy. I've, there's nothing else I need. When God created um, you know, us as humans, we didn't need anything else except him. But through our sins, we try to go different places to say, okay, maybe I'll have happiness through this. Maybe I'll have happiness through this. And then you try it and you fall and you get up and you fall and you get up and then you're like, no, that was not, that did not work out. That did not work out. My true happiness really comes from living with God. And once I get to that point, then he becomes my number one joy. And then it's just a question of percentage-wise, how much of my joy is really coming from God? You know, people that have exceeded others spiritually, God was 100% source of their joy. Other people might be like, you know, 10%, 15%, but they need other people to help them along the way. Maybe they need their friends. Maybe they need their spouses. Maybe they need their children. Maybe they need whatever to help with that joy. But along the way, as we grow spiritually, we need to increase the percentage of God's, you know, source of joy to us 
and reduce other people, you know, along the way. And that way we become more spiritual. So hopefully that answered the question about despair. Passiveness, I think here what is meant by how can I deal with passiveness? Passiveness is more like uh, the feeling of lukewarm. Like I'm neither hot nor cold. Uh, I'm neither really uh, going to church, neither really, uh, you know, going to church on a regular basis. I'm just passive. A lot of times when people are lukewarm, they don't quite understand that this life is very short. If they truly understand that this life is very short, then there's no way they could be lukewarm. There's no way they could be passive. Um, you know, I don't like to talk about death <laughs> that because it might actually put people down, but death is a great lesson for all of us. You know, funerals are great lessons for all of us, which is a sad thing to say, but it's so true. Whenever you encounter someone and that you know very well, and then all of a sudden they don't exist, that's a great lesson. Whenever you go to a funeral, that's a great lesson. Why? Because it reminds you and me that our life on earth is not forever. It reminds us that we have a very short time, that death will come to us, that we will not live forever, that we will not have things with us when we leave. All these realizations, if I truly realize these things, I'm here for a very short time, I am not taking anything with me, and I need to know where I'm going. That should prompt me not to be lukewarm. <laughs> that should be like, you know, uh, you know, someone's if like snap, snap me and, you know, on my forehead and says, wake up, wake up. You're not here forever. The world will teach you to enjoy the moment. The biggest struggle that we all encounter is that one moment of enjoyment. The world will tell you, enjoy the moment. But sadly, they pitch it in a negative way. Enjoy the moment through sin, enjoy the moment through drugs, enjoy the moment through alcohol, enjoy the moment. But really, the higher level is to not necessarily enjoy the moment. Because, uh, so what? I'm going to have 100 years worth of moments. Who cares? I want the eternity. Um, so for us Christians, we need to enjoy our eternity and work out our salvation with fear and trembling, like St. Paul says. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Put on the full armor of God. We're fighting a fight, but for a short time. If I take it seriously and I'm really, really, you know, sharp with my, my goals in life and know these simple truths that I'm here for a short time, I have a purpose and I am going towards heaven. Then all of a sudden your perception of things will change. I can no longer be passive about my life. I don't have that much time, you know, and your perception of time changes as you get older as well. So when you're five years old, one year is like 20% of your life. Another five years, it's like doubling your age from five to 10. So your perception of five years is like, whoa, I'm going to double my age. But when you're 10 years old, that same one year is all of a sudden is one tenth of your age. So it's nothing. To double your age is like 10 years. So it's, no, so it's nothing. 
And as you get older, 40, 50, 60, one year is nothing. Again, as a percentage of your age is nothing. And then all of a sudden your realization that, wow, the one year when I was younger would actually consume my life a lot more than one year when I'm a lot older. So your perception of time changes along the way as you get older. So you need to be sharp with your, um, your life and you need to focus. What, what am I doing here? What's my role in life? How can I go to heaven? How can I you know, discipline myself to make sure that I'm going the right path? What if I, you know, I, I want to go to heaven and I want to bring as many people with me? I don't want to go alone. I want to make sure everybody comes with me. I want my friends to come with me. I want my husband and my wife and my kids. I want everybody. So let's go. There's no time to be lukewarm. And then over time, you'll understand that the zeal, the zeal that I'm talking about comes from the Holy Spirit. That it, you know, when the Holy Spirit is on fire inside of you, you cannot, you cannot be cool, you cannot be lukewarm. The Holy Spirit moves you. Like, let's go. We need to, we need to move. You know, um, and we need to progress. And I only have a very brief time to get myself there and to bring as many people with me as possible. And there's a lot to learn, and there's a lot for me to prepare for myself. It's like the five wise virgins that were awake. And, and ready to go. He could come any minute. Death could come any minute. God could come any minute. Am I ready? You know, am I working? Am I being faithful? All these things fight against passiveness and make me a lot more focused in my spiritual life. Um, okay, just another question that I'm reading right now. Um, it, so this question um, is about the end of days and in the book of Revelations and talks about, you know, the Antichrist uh, and the sign of the beast. And, and the question is basically saying, what are some ways we can see through it? Uh, again, knowing the book of Revelation and knowing what is to come is one thing uh, but knowing that the end of days don't really have to happen for me to end my time on earth is the most important realization a lot of times people look at the grandeur mega end of days for everyone but that might not happen in my lifetime but death will definitely happen my own death will definitely happen so that's a better focus on how do i prepare for that how do i prepare for that we don't, you know, the book of Revelation is filled with prophecies and filled with symbolism and different interpretations. So there's no one way or one accurate way to really interpret each of the verses. But we know that there are certain signs that have supposedly have come to fruition and some that are still to come. Uh, but the better question is, how do I prepare myself for the end of my days rather than how do I prepare myself for the end of days for the whole world? And to prepare for my self and the end of my days is to take your spirituality seriously is to take your spiritual canon seriously saint uh, or pope shenouda the third of blessed memory used to say that the difference between saints and normal lay people is the level of seriousness that they uh, put on their spirituality 
if we are serious about our own spirituality, if I'm serious with my canon, if I'm serious in my prayers and my Bible reading and taking communion, I'm serious with my repentance and confession. I must repent on a, on a regular basis, once a month, uh, on a regular basis. If I do that seriously, then I, I'm on my way uh, to sainthood. Hopefully that answered that question. Um, how can I deal with low self-esteem in a spiritual way? I think, um, um, I think that's the same as the other one. Low self-esteem and despair, I think it's the same thing. Um, when I understand that my worth is not based on my actions, my worth is not based on my achievement, my worth is not based on my bank account, my true worth is equal to the blood of Christ on the cross. That is my true worth. So Christ came and says, your worth is me dying on the cross. That's your true worth. That's my true worth. Uh, if I know that, and I know that Christ came on earth to save me and died for me, and he loves me, that gives me a lot of self-esteem, that I'm not something that's trivial. I'm not something that's cheap. I'm not something just like everybody else, like any other animal or any other object. No, my worth is the blood of Christ on the cross. And this worth is, 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 is unbelievably unmeasured by worldly things. I cannot give you the worth of one drop of the blood of Christ. Nothing on this whole planet would be equal to one blood drop of Christ. When we give communion, when a priest gives communion, you know, you should see how much he's almost like hovering over the body of Christ and hovering over the blood of Christ. And there's a single drop that comes, you know, like they make sure that they take care of it and they protect it. And there's a small pearl that falls, you know, it's like, and there's an angel of the liturgy that is standing there protecting anything else that the priest does not see. All of this is equivalent to the worth of a human being. And this worth is what gives me that self-esteem. And my self-esteem and my joy really should come from God and not be based on people, not be based on personal achievement, not be based on a bank account, not be based on you know, how many degrees I have or what my profession is, all of that. No, it's based on God and based on um, um, sorry, it says your video is frozen. Okay, let me see. Stop. Does that help? I think so. Okay. And so, so ho hopefully the low self-esteem is the same as the despair. How much detail do I need to mention in the sacrament of confession? Um, that's a very personal question to everyone. Um, 
from the perspective of the priest, as long as the priest recognizes what the sin is, uh, it does not need to be detailed at all from the perspective of the priest. From the perspective of the confessor, sometimes the confessor wants to go into the details to relieve themselves of that sin. And then the priest says, that, that's fine. You don't need to go into that level of detail, but I want to comfort you, so I'll listen to the details that you want to provide. But a lot of times, personally, I, um, I encourage people to, when they're confessing, if they cannot, you know, if they want to give me just a high level, that's okay. If they want me to almost like help them along the way, that's okay. If they want to write it down on their cell phone and give it to me and show it to me, that's okay. Um, if they want to uh, start it off, I usually try to finish it for them if I get the impression that they're really shy and, and be like, you probably did this and this and this and this and this. Like, oh, how did you know Abuna? I'm like, I didn't. I'm just trying to help you out. Um, you could tell me <laughs> which one I said right and which one I didn't say right. Um, but the idea is to build that relationship between uh, yourself and your father of confession. Your relationship between yourself and your father of confession is a very intimate relationship and a very spiritual relationship. Um, spiritual in a sense of, I need guidance in my life and I need someone to hold me accountable for my spirituality. And this father figure of mine will lead me slowly into the right path. And if I truly understand this, and I truly trust in this, my spirituality will definitely grow and I will be discipled under this priest. And this discipleship is extremely important when it comes to spirituality. Um, monks, whenever they, you know, they want to become monks, they don't go through, uh, you know, let's go check out where's the best monastery, like what, you know, what, which one has the best itinerary, which has the best view, which one has, you know, the best, uh, I don't know, churches. That's not the point. When monks are trying to find a place to uh, dedicate their life in, they go and seek uh, a holy father. And if they find a holy father, regardless of the location, <laughs> of that monastery, they seek to be discipled under that holy father or priest or bishop or whatever. And they follow that person regardless of where, where he is along the way. So there are stories of the disciples, for example, of Saint uh, Pope Corlus VI. You know, he wasn't living in a monastery all the time. He was living in a mill. Uh, and the disciples would just come and follow him and would just pray with him and stay with him. Uh, same thing with stories of like St. Anthony. You know, St. Anthony didn't really stay in a monastery. Like at that time, there wasn't really monasteries. So the people would just come and seek where he is in the desert and they would just stay with him and follow him. And this discipleship along the way is what made other people saints along the way. So that's what we believe in in the church. And that's why my relationship with my father of confession is really important for me to be discipled under uh, under him and along the way the more comfortable I become to go back to that question now the more comfortable I become 
in that relationship. And the more I know that this person is not going to judge me, this person loves me, this person cares about me, this is my father that I seek to go and, and, and talk to, then I, it might become easier to talk about my sins if I feel like I need to go into more details. Um, it's, not, it's not a requirement to have a very explicit details of all the sins, but it's just out of my love and my comfort. And as a confessor, because a priest is, uh, is, uh, is a human being that confesses and receives confession, a lot of times when I confess, I find that I get more comfort when I go into a bit more details rather than just say uh, the high level arching type of you know, sins. And then with that, and when I notice that my father confession comforts me and, and guides me and, and you know, makes and encourages me and motivates me, that's when I, I feel at ease and at peace whenever I go and, and talk to my father confession. Uh, I think we're coming to the 8.30 time. Um, so I'm just going to stop here for, for a second and just ask if there's any more follow-up questions uh, that we have, Sharif? No, no, that's all we have. Okay, wonderful. Uh, can you uh, please let Abuna Matthias know that I stopped at question number 14? And sure. I will let him know as well. Okay. Okay, let's end with a prayer. Okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, Lord, for such a wonderful day. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings of today. Thank you, Lord, for all the time that we are together mentioning your name, for you are truly always in our midst. Bless each one of us and guide our path in this life, and let us live a holy, righteous life to praise your holy name on earth and to be many Christs in everything that we do through the intercessions of St. Mary and St. Paul and St. Athanasius. Here is when she thanks you, our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, by his kingdom, the power and the glory forever.